You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined by Tom Serafagus uh, from Bloomberg, as well as Cam Gill from CIBC Capital Markets. I'd like to give you a really quick introduction to both of them. Tom's an ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Prior to Bloomberg, he held roles in ETF groups for Oppenheimer Funds, as well as Index IQ, and he was also product development at NASDAQ, where he worked on creating innovative indices uh, for ETF sponsors. Cam Gill, uh, who's at CIBC Capital Markets, leads the CIBC's ETF execution and retail block trading business and is responsible for institutional sales, market making, and risk management across all ETF asset classes. Tom and Cam, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a year in review since we are approaching the end of 2018. Uh, maybe, Tom, you can start off and give us kind of a quick overview of what you've seen happen in the U.S. ETF market and how it's compared to uh, previous years, uh, and were there any real significant milestones that uh, that are worth mentioning? Yeah, sure. So this year, I'd probably sum it up, it was a good year, but it wasn't the best year. And the bar was set really high last year. Um, so last year here in the U.S., there was almost half a trillion in flows in one year, right? That's That's crazy considering the industry took 20 years to hit a trillion. Now we're hitting almost half a trillion in one year. This year, we're at about $260 billion, so about half of where we were, eh, maybe a little bit more than half where we were last year, but a couple things played into came into play here. Is one, the market was a lot more volatile this year than it was last year, so that sort of played into a little bit w- with the flows. But one thing that really stuck out this year with flows, and this has sort of been here in the U.S., was sort of the year of, like, the cash ETF, right? Like, the really boring, short-duration type products have taken a tremendous amount of money this year. And it was sort of this interesting thing happening in the U.S. is you had a lot of volatility in the equity market, so you had a lot of it – was, it was tough finding winning ETFs in equities, but then also with rates going up, it was sort of difficult to find some of some well-performing fixed income ETFs, right? So the kind of really the only safe place to be this year for ETF flows was, um, and just because just, there's really two purposes with these short-term duration products. One is um, there's sort of just a, a shelter away from the market, but two, with short-term rates coming up a little bit, you're actually making some decent yield on some of these shorter-term products than what you were making before. So this year was just you know, it sort of summed up as the flows are kind of, they were going to some of the boring areas, um, especially after what we saw in October last month with some of the volatility. Low vol ETFs have taken in some money, like consumer staples ETFs were leading, utilities. Like these are sectors that we haven't been used to seeing sort of on top of the leaderboard. So we sort of been tech and, and thematics. So this year has really sort of been the year of like the, the cash ETF in, in the U.S. Cam, same question. What's it been like here in Canada? So I'd uh, I'd probably uh, echo some of Tom's comments. I think even more recently, uh, Canada has definitely seen a lot of inflow into some of these short-term money market funds. Um, Overall, though, I'd say, you know, in Canada, growth was definitely slower than in 2017, and that's both in terms of new products coming to market as well as flows. Uh, There's no question, though, that there continues to be a structural shift towards ETFs, away from mutual funds. Um, you know, ETFs represent approximately 10% of total mutual fund assets, uh, but about 50% of all inflows. So 
you know, I, I, I'd say it's still an exciting year. Um, you know, it's hard to, to, to live up to the to previous year, year over year, considering how much growth has taken place. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of new things coming to market, including you know some of the incumbents, uh, some major banks, for example, launching recently. Thematics have also been very popular, as you well know. Um, stuff like blockchain product and, and cannabis funds uh, have both seen a tremendous amount of, of inflows. So. 2017, I think, will be marked by a lot of those things, like between the, the thematic funds as well as uh, the money market funds. Tom, did did mutual funds have negative flows this year so far in the U.S.? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's sort of I want to throw it back and say it depends, right? So when you're looking at on the equity side, it's it's been it's about preliminary numbers are about 200 billion out of active equity, um, but. In fixed income, I don't have those numbers yet, but typically on the fixed income side, flows have been a little bit safer there. Um, there's sort of this our bigger like debate that we're, this bigger trend that we're seeing is that um, you know this whole shift over to passive. It's definitely been eating away at the active equity guys a lot more than it has been on the fixed income side because you can make cases that maybe indexing is not as efficient in fixed income and it's, and it's you know a lot of these funds tend to be in, you know some of these fixed income ones tend to be in some some uh, very illiquid areas like bank loans and especially strategies that have done well like this year floating rate in bank loans so over on the equity side we've seen flows on the fixed income side certain areas like like bank loans and whatnot but overall fixed income flows have actually been pretty immune from this passive shift not to say that money's still not coming over but um for some reason there's always this this stigma that just investors seem to really prefer active uh, in fixed income so those guys have sort of been a little bit uh, a little bit immune from some of the bigger shifts you know i I kind of uh make a comment around that that it's important to recognize like the, Passive, active, like that line is, I'd argue, a little bit different when it comes to fixed income. A lot of managers benchmark themselves to the ag, which is arguably a very easy and too broad-based benchmark. So with so many different issues in the fixed income space, you almost have to be active. It's, you know, one of the only ways to to make money. so I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I'd almost suggest like you know being passive in fixed income is just it just doesn't work. It hardly ever works. Yeah. Yeah, and when you sort of look at some of the outperformance rates, it's obviously a lot a lot better in um, in fixed income. And I know some people come back and say, well, is the ag really the appropriate benchmark? Because some of these fund managers, right, they're benchmarking to the ag, but they step out of the ag, so they can go get high yield, they can go get emerging market debt. Um, so there's sort of sometimes we we also will, we'll look at you know some of these bond managers compared to the ag, but sometimes we'll look at the the universal index, which sort of has some other some other. Uh, fixed income sectors in the two some is a bit of a broader benchmark and the numbers obviously come down a little bit because a lot of these guys over the last couple of years have sort of stepped into high yield and it's been good for them that's sort of where a lot of their performance has been coming from so we're we're doing this podcast um in uh, early december of 2018 uh obviously in the middle of this uh pretty volatile marketplace uh and hopefully by the time people listen to this podcast we have passed most of that volatility um, what role do you guys think ETFs have had or potentially exacerbated uh, in this in this market? You know, one thing I will echo about on the flows, so even though the flows were not as impressive as they were last year, even though they're really good, trading-wise, ETFs have had a really big year. It's actually, for a couple of things, for example, in October, it was the most 
ever for fixed income ETF trading. Um, and then even depending on how we're going to finish the year, we're actually looking like this might be the busiest year for ETF trading, even more than 2008. Um, we'll see how the rest of the year goes. But we combat this a lot, sort of, and even something more recently to tell you, like there was the GICS rebalance here in the U.S., right, and um, some big stocks moved out, and we, we've heard some people shouting that. And then it, it almost coincided with the sell-off in October. But when you actually sort of look at the data, the rebalance happened a solid week or 10 days before even the sell-off started happening in um, in October. And we, we have to deal with this deal with this a lot and ETFs sometimes have just become this the scapegoat. Anytime there's a problem in the market or there's a hiccup, um, they go to ETFs first, right? They're sort of um they're sort of on the forefront. A lot of people use ETFs, they they see them in the news, they see all the trading that they do, so sort of go after it. Um, you know when you sort of look at even some specific aspects like fixed income, I mean the argument could probably be made that ETFs are actually helping, right? Um, enhance liquidity, right? Because some of these sectors how are you going to, you know, a lot of this trading the ETF just makes it so much easier than having to go and trade the underlying market and one, and just the fact that ETFs are being traded more and they're being used more just shows that the market is comfortable with them and they've sort of adopted to them. So there's been, you know, from 93 until now, there's been so many ETF trades and, you know, really, and you just want to see where these arguments come from. A lot of it always tends to come from these active managers, right, that are running these <laughs> sure. these funds, and they're saying, hey, ETFs are going to cause the next credit spiral or they're going to cause the next unwinding in, in bank loans or whatnot. Um, so that comes up a lot. Uh, but really, as of right now, we just haven't seen it with ETFs. ETFs have, like, even with the volatile month that we had in October, like, time and time again, ETFs are, are like, up. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Even look at October. Um, they went through that market volatility, and they held up well, and they, they were able to absorb some of these shocks in the market. Yeah, well, I remember, I mean, one of the things we talk, tell a lot of advisors when when they talk about trading is, Back in 2008, obviously, um, when the bond market went no bid, the only way to actually get liquidity uh, was through bond ETFs uh, to get liquidity into the bond market. I mean, they were obviously pretty widespread, but at least there was at least they were making a market and there was liquidity there. Cam, you have anything to add on that? I'd agree. I mean, what Tom mentioned is super common. Like one of the great things about ETFs is that they're transparent, and one of the terrible things about ETFs is that they're transparent. So uh, too often people, uh, you know, gravitate towards them as a product as being the cause um, to some problems, but it tends to be, you know, a reflection of what's happening in the underlying market itself. Uh, I, I suggest that, you know, in some cases they do help a lot, and it's not just in terms of liquidity, but also in terms of buffering some of the volatility. Uh, you know, we all know that, the corporate bond world, the amount of inventory held by brokers globally has decreased significantly, and uh, there's a strong argument to be made that the amount of volatility and, and just uh, lack of pricing uh, for those products is because of that problem. ETFs are held very widely, and uh, they're supported by market makers and designated brokers, and I think that helps buffer some of the price action that, that you would otherwise see if someone were just trading an outright basket of something. Right. Um, so I, you know, I, I do think that the volatility that's taking place is, is more structural. I think that, you know, it's, it's reflective of what's happening uh, with investors globally. 
Um, I don't think that I'd point to any particular product uh, as being the problem. Right. That makes sense. Let, let's talk about, um, let's move on and talk about advisor use of, uh, of ETFs and maybe try and differentiate. Tom, I, I, you may not be that familiar with the Canadian landscape. I'm going to start with Cam. Um, specifically, you know, what, what, do you, what do you see as to be the key differences uh, between, the Canada, between Canada and the U.S. in terms of how advisors are using ETFs? Well, I'd say uh, the biggest difference in general, and this doesn't just, just go with advisors, is, you know, although we had arguably the first ETF in the world, uh, adoption has been slower than it was in the U.S. So it is, it is uh, unbelievably still a relatively new uh, asset or vehicle. Um, you know, in, with the increasing rate of fee-based advisors in Canada, uh, we're definitely seeing more and more advisors using ETFs, uh, and I think that that trend is going to continue. I, I think that we still have a few years left, um, and like in most businesses, I think that the advisor community is being asked to do more with less, and those products lend themselves very well uh, to, to servicing their clients. So. Um, you know, we, from my from my viewpoint, uh, we see a tremendous amount of growth in that space. Uh, we see and receive a ton of uh, inbound inquiries, and you know, we, CIBC has the second largest advisor channel in Canada. And I can't tell you how often I'll bump into an advisor or get a call from an advisor who has yet to even use an ETF. Yeah. So it's it's new, right? And that's that's why it's exciting. That's why I think that there's still a lot of momentum left in the ETF space uh, in terms of assets. There are a lot of people who are just now figuring out how they can use them to benefit their clients. And uh, I can tell you that they're pretty excited about it. They're they're always coming up with new creative ways to do it. And uh, from from our perspective, uh, the amount of education required is still pretty high. So, do you think ETFs will ever eclipse mutual fund assets? Uh, I don't think so. I've never been one to think that, you know, there is some cannibalization for sure, but I, I don't think that an ETF is a silver bullet for all investment strategies or for all investors. Uh, I think that there's definitely a place for the mutual fund industry, and I think that, you know, they're carving out niches with things like um, liquid alt funds, and some strategies, to be very blunt, uh, are just better executed in a mutual fund than they could ever be in an ETF. I can tell you from my experience talking to advisors, first of all, I think many of them compartmentalize their ETFs and their mutual funds away from each other, uh, which I often find interesting because normally I would expect that you would compartmentalize strategies and not uh, structures. But uh, we've, seen, we've seen a lot of that where an advisor might want to move from one ETF to another ETF, but they're not thinking as much about moving from one mutual fund uh, over to an ETF. And I think a lot of times as well that, that you mentioned, you know, the fact that there's still a lot of advisors that are not using ETFs. For example, in the active space, I don't think many of, a lot of those advisors even know that active ETFs exist. Um, they tend to think of ETFs as these, as these cheap beta vehicles. Uh, so there's definitely still a lot of education we're probably further behind uh, than than the U.S. And Tom, I don't know if you want to add anything into the, to to this discussion. Sure. And one thing that's I think really interesting is even just saying like active and passive, right? And who's here, and it's happening in Canada too. You have a lot of these like new strategies that are being launched. Say even though they're an index, right? They're they're tracking an index. There's many like active inputs that go into that index, right? So they're you know if it's like a value. 
a value ETF, someone has to decide how we're going to measure value, right? Is it we're using this metric? Are we using a composite? How often are we rebalancing? How many names are we picking? Are we looking at it? at sector neutral, all those are very active inputs, right, that go into an index and then the index is sort of just set on autopilot. I think that sort of blurs a lot of the lines between sort of active and passive and you can say, hey, yeah, it's passive, it's an ETF. But when you look through the methodology, there's 20 inputs that go into it, right? Like that's very active, like even though it's sort of just running on its own. So I think sometimes that sort of blurs um, blurs the lines a little bit and, and when someone's, you know, they're just putting ETFs and mutual funds separately, but a lot of these strategies have like half, you know, have a brain, right? Even though they're, they're sort of, maybe there's not anyone at the wheel, it's autopilot, but putting those inputs together was a very, you know, those, there was PhDs and those teams of people putting those together. So let's shift over to active ETFs. We've touched on it a couple of times, but um, it's, it's probably worthwhile to talk about uh, the difference between Canada uh, and the U.S. Uh, because many believe that, you know, Canada has a regulatory advantage from a transparency perspective. Um, what are you seeing in the U.S. right now, Tom? Are you seeing uh, funds get exemptions uh, to, to, to perhaps provide selective disclosure? Are you seeing that as a growing trend? Because Canada is punching way above its weight in terms of assets into active ETFs versus most other parts of the world, and obviously that's got a lot to do with uh, our regulatory advantage, but what's happening in that landscape in the U.S.? Yeah, definitely here, because even two years ago, the SEC made it easier to launch, um, sort of created this express lane for active ETFs. So the last two years for active launches have been have been the busiest. And actually, and it's funny you said this, it was unrelated to this. I ran the numbers this morning, and this is the busiest year for active launches, something like 65 ETFs, but a quarter of the ETFs that launched this year were active. Um, so wow. there's definitely... A big, yeah, focus. And over the last two years, too, if you're looking at it after the SEC made it easier, and it's sort of expected is now there's been this really big bump up in active launches. But the assets, at least here in the U.S., they're still pretty small. The active ETFs are still about 2% of the entire ETF market. And there's sort of a few things happening. One is a lot of them are, are new, right? So advisors just typically like to see the track record there with active. So a lot of them, because they're just in the last two or three years, don't have that built-up track record. Uh, also, the other thing, too, is when you're sort of seeing some of the newer issuers that are coming into the space, so like Prudential, for example, just launched ETFs this year. A lot of these guys are active, traditional active shops, right? So sort of a stepping stone for them is just to get into active too. So that's sort of also been feeling sort of the, some of the big uptake in active launches. Uh, and then most of it here in the U.S., most of the assets are pretty much in, in fixed income. Um, there's right. there's Product-wise, it's about pretty even, but most of the assets are in a lot of these. Uh, and I think it sort of goes back to some things we were talking about, just how, um, you know, active is sort of preferred a little bit more in fixed income. And even in the ETFs, uh, most of the, about 75% or so of the assets are um, in, in uh, fixed income active ETFs. But there's definitely um, a big focus for, for launches there. And you're, you, um, the other thing, too, that sort of feeds into a nuance is, here in the U.S., a lot of these ETFs need to get approved on these platforms, right? So on the Merrill platform, the Morgan platform, et cetera, Active just takes a little bit longer to get approved, right? Um, so even though these are launching, a lot of them are a little bit slower to sort of take in assets because it's a much slower process. It's slower for them. 
to get onto the platforms. They have to build a track record. They have to sort of just like how an advisor looks at mutual funds and they sort of analyze a manager. It's the, it's the same thing, just a different wrapper. So right. it's a big product focus. I think it'll just take a little bit more time before maybe some assets start to pile in more significantly. Cam, you want to comment on the Canadian landscape for active ETFs? So I, yeah, so I'd, I'd, uh, I'd agree with what you said earlier, right? So we're punching way above our weight, and um, I hadn't refreshed on the stat recently, but uh, not too long ago, we definitely had the most active funds uh, globally. So active managed ETFs definitely continue to, to kind of rapidly populate product shelves. Uh, at all manufacturers, they, I think they accounted for uh, 18 of the last 24 launches uh, over the second quarter of 2018. So um, that's that's pretty impressive in terms of stats. Um, in terms of assets, I think about 20% of assets in Canada are now considered to be in an active product. So there's certainly appetite for it. Um, Tom had mentioned earlier, you know, ETFs being considered passive. I think that that tends to be the way that investors look at these funds. Uh, I think now Canadian investors are realizing that they can get active strategies. So, you know, strategies with some specific IP or powered by a particular, um, it, uh, you know, PM or asset manager uh, at a very relatively low cost and through a vehicle that they understand that they can use through through their, uh, you know, discount channel or whatnot. So it makes a lot of sense. ETFs are the better widget for a lot of other strategies. I think that it kind of democratizes some of those strategies for investors that would otherwise not have access. And you can certainly see that there's appetite. So I'm curious to see how things play out in the U.S. over time. Um, I would expect, you know, a similar um, distribution between active passive to take place there. And like I like I had mentioned earlier, I don't I don't really see that slowing down. Let's talk about fees because that often is um, a topic as it relates to ETFs is one of the advantages. Obviously, many people have heard about the race to zero for a number of the of fees for the funds, uh, the ETFs out there. Um, I'll let both of you comment. Do you think that this is actually a good thing for the overall industry to be in this race to zero? Tom, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So I would say one thing, at least here in the U.S., we hit zero, right, with uh, – not in the ETF, but with mutual funds, right? So Fidelity launched this whole lineup of Fidelity Zero funds um, so that you can get free exposure uh, in the mutual fund wrapper. On the ETF side, I mean, the floor is set at three basis points, so figure we're, we're pretty much there, right? Um, yeah. And then when you sort of factor in things like security lending and, and some of the fees that go back into the NAV, you pretty much – for some of these, you're, you're – you're, getting it for free. You're getting exposure for free. So it's pretty safe to say that you're, you're pretty much getting market exposure for free. So overall, I mean, is it good for an investor? Yes. Like it's, you have access to pretty much every part of the world. You can build, I, I forgot what it, what the fee was, but building like a well-diversified portfolio with like five or so ETFs, you can do it for like 10 basis points. Yeah, I saw um, that too. Like the world's cheapest ETF portfolio. Uh, yeah. So, but one so overall, right, so low cost has been good, but then sort of what we're seeing happening is this almost over-obsession with cost, right, here. And it might sound like a, like a bad thing the way I'm saying it, but when you sort of look at the landscape, you have about 15% or so of the products, of the actual products themselves, are less than 20 basis points, but they hold almost 70% of the assets, right? And you get it, you need scale to get that big, and that's why they can lower their fees because they get big, but everyone is sort of overly obsessed with just 
cost. And it just gets me thinking sometimes that does that sometimes lead to some poor behavior, right? Are you potentially, so if you're only limiting your universe to those 15% of the funds, you might be screening out some pretty interesting and some pretty, uh, some you know, some very interesting things in that 85% that, let's say, not below 20 basis points. Not to say that, you know, then one's sort of like, okay, my fiduciary duty, I have to buy the cheapest product. That's just, that's, they're putting that hand in hand. But sometimes I think there can almost be this disservice being done that you are potentially narrowing your selection universe just by having this over obsession with cost. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see if the pendulum sort of, I think right now it's just swinging very hard to one direction, sort of like everyone's just very cost obsessed. As maybe, you know, this market, the you know, the passive market grows more and more adop- more ETF adoption, does the pendulum sort of normalize a little bit? And is there going to be a balance between, okay, let me get really cheap beta exposure, which costs nothing, but now we're going to have these, you know, high active share, whether they're active funds or smart beta funds, a little bit more expensive and sort of barbelling those together, right? So um, I think it's good for an investor, but also it, it's interesting to see if it sort of leads to some weird behavioral things. And it People just buying the cheapest thing, even though maybe it's not necessarily the best thing, but you think it is because it's the cheapest. Right. Cam, any thoughts? So my my thought on this is, uh, you know, you mentioned volatility earlier. I think that, you know, it's a great it's a great question, uh, you know, to to take with that lens, right? So, uh, cheap beta is a great product, and it makes a lot of sense when there's low volatility and markets tend to trend in one direction. Um, Active funds that come at a higher fee tend to perform better in right. volatile markets. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the bottom line is always going to be that investors will pay for true alpha. And uh, over time, over the last, you know, arguably 15 years, um, it has been very popular for good, good reason. It's been very difficult to outperform certain benchmarks. But I think with with increased volatility and uh, just a you know a lack of direction with where the market is headed, I think active managers will outperform and they should obviously command a higher uh, premium in terms of the fees. You know they meet with management, uh, they you know do the research, they take the time. It's not just computer model and. You know, is there a, a race to zero? Certainly, for sure, uh, and that will be in, in passive beta product. And those funds, it's a it's a scale game, and it's very very difficult to compete. But they'll make money in other ways. Um, but there's always going to be a need for for alpha, and uh, those funds are definitely going to be able to carve out a niche, and they'll be well deserving of the fees that they charge. So this race to zero is partly a consequence of all the competition. Uh, in the space, so it's probably a good segue for to talk about that, which is do you think that there's too much competition? you think the marketplace has become crowded? There's too many issuers and there's too much product out there? And I'll start with you this time, Cam. So uh, there are globally, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, let's call it 8,000 ETFs. Is that right? Oh. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. yeah so with, all, with, with, with Europe, because uh, about, yeah, so almost five just between Europe and uh, U.S., yeah, so, and, and, you know, this is also a rough number, but I believe there are about 100,000 mutual funds globally. Right. So, um, you know, that's a big difference. And, you know, there, there are 100 different Canadian equity mutual funds. Um, 
there are less Canadian equity ETFs. So I think part of it is just visibility, right? There's, it's very easy to come up with a list of ETF product. Um, it's, there's a lot of marketing and there's definitely a lot of attention in both the media as well as, you know, just general advertisement when it comes to ETF, ETF funds. Uh, the mutual fund space is, is even more crowded. So, you know, I, I suggest that there could be some consolidation. There, there definitely are a lot of ETFs in Canada, maybe relative to the U.S. and definitely in terms of the assets that are there. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's part of the benefit, right? That you can launch product and close product when and if needed. So, you know, is it crowded? Um, in terms of providers, I, I'd say we're probably at a good number. Uh, is it crowded in terms of product? No, not necessarily. There's always demand for quality products. Um, but along those lines, Tim, do you feel like too many people are just coming up with, you know, the same type of products over and over, just a, just a slight twist to them, like it's becoming somewhat commoditized? How many different ways do we need to slice and dice a, a quality dividend strategy? It really, so there are two ways to look at it. Number one is do you have distribution, right? So if you have a captive distribution yeah. channel, I think it's critical to give your 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 client base access to uh, product um, regardless of whether someone else has it or not. I think that in terms of general product launch at times, I, I, I wonder to myself how much consultation is taking place too often within the ETF space, and I think this goes in the U.S. as well as Canada, people just throw things at the wall and, and hope they gather assets, um, whereas uh, what I think should be taking place is you give people what they need, like, you know, you close the gaps that are missing in their portfolio. So, you know, there are definitely products out there that shouldn't exist, uh, but there's definitely still an opportunity for, for new products to pop up and meet investor demand. If you were to tell me, um, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago that there would be a cannabis ETF in Canada that's bigger than our S&P gold uh, ETF. <laughs> I would have thought that you were crazy. Um, and I think that speaks volumes to, to that to that question, right? It's There's always an opportunity to charge more for alpha, and there's always an opportunity for a product that, that drives or delivers alpha. Great. Tom, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I'll echo pretty much everything Cam said, but even here in the U.S., three trillion or so, three and a half trillion ETF assets, seventeen trillion mutual funds. We can always make the case, oh, well, there's there's X many funds. I mean, there can be more. I mean, overall, I love the innovation, and I sort of love that it's it's competitive, and in you know, these issuers are trying out different ideas. But there definitely is sometimes like this overcrowding, right? And like you had said, and when we see filings in like a new large cap value ETF comes through, we sort of roll our eyes a little bit. It's sort of like, okay, like how many of these can we have? How many more quality factor ETFs can we have? Um, yeah. So I get the part of it is the sponsors just building up their own suites, right? So they're sort of checking off all the menu items so that they have everything that they need. So you don't, you really just, okay, I really like JP Morgan's strategy. I'm going to, I'm going to stay with them. They have all the factor stuff that I, that I need. So it, we, you know, there's definitely no stopping the, the, the people trying, the issuers trying, right? But also what's happened in the U.S., it's getting more competitive. So like maybe, you know, the number of launches are going up every year, gross launches, but there's more closures happening too, right? So it's getting more competitive. The issuers are cleaning up their 
their product lineups, uh, products aren't making it, they're closing them. So actually on a net basis, we're trending down a little bit, even though there's constantly new products coming in and being tried out. But um, a lot of them are being closed, too. So, uh, you know, launches is sort of just half the story, too. So, um, and also here, and we kind of alluded to it a little bit within fixed income, there's definitely a lot of work being done by the sponsors in fixed income, sort of trying to come up with these more enhanced fixed income indexes, right? Again, we were talking about how um, a lot of these benchmarks are easily beatable. There are now these a lot of these new indexes coming out, they're basically trying to take the bond manager's brain. They're being more selective in the credits. They're using rate hedging. Uh, they're reweighting it to enhance the yield. So they're doing all these strategies maybe some of these active guys are doing on the indexing side. That's definitely one area where it's a little bit of a white space here in the U.S., just because most of the assets, most of the products are like your traditional ag market value-weighted. So there's definitely a lot of work being done there, and, and that part I'm really interested in, just to sort of see what sort of comes out on the fixed income side. So Equities, we're, we're always constantly seeing launches there, but um, we're, we're, we're keeping a pretty close eye on some of the fixed income launches because I think there's some, there's still some white space there that, that's being tested out from the issuers. So let's let's stay with you on this, Tom. What do you think of uh, thematics? Are they resonating uh, and growing in in the U.S. right now? Yeah, I think thematic was it's been like a smash hit here in the U.S. and almost now to the point where like everybody wants to get into thematics right and it's always traditionally been like these really smaller niche providers like global x and, and yeah. robo right and they were sort of sitting doing nothing for a long time then all, i mean robo had no assets for a while and then all of a sudden robotics became like the biggest thing and robo took off bots took off and now everyone else got into it iShares, first trust everyone's launching um robotics and thematic etfs it's, I think what's interesting about it is I think advisors love the story, right? And I mean, maybe you're not going to put 25% of your portfolio in robotics, or I mean, maybe you are. I don't know, or marijuana. But it's the story. Every time we talk to anyone about thematics, like I feel like their their eyes always light up. Like they always like talking about it. Uh, it's going to be a big. I think we're going to see more and more thematic products, a lot of copycat products, but obviously everybody is trying to find the next, like, bots that Global yeah. had. Everybody wants to do that. So they're trying to get ahead of it, whether it's being marijuana that's already, you know, we have a marijuana ETF here too, robotics, cybersecurity. Um, but now there's starting to be some twists on it, right? So you sort of have, like, the 1.0 was bots. Now you're going to have these products coming out that are going to have maybe be more selective in robotics. They're going to maybe use a value screen or a quality screen to pick names. We have here filing, no joke, like a junior robotics uh, ETF that's in filing. So I think we're going to see more and more of those types of products come out. But um, I think a lot of that just came first because there was demand for it. Like it came, you know, it's just something different when you go and talk to a client. Do you think that they're more that, that thematics are more catered to uh, bull markets where uh, people are just trying to figure out ways to generate extra alpha and you know, and and now maybe we're entering into a market where people are just focused on risk management and diversification. Sure. So that could play a role. But one thing about thematics that really interests me over the last couple months or so was I looked at what happened with thematic flows in October, right? Because we looked at like just broad tech, and broad tech had huge outflows in October. Thematic actually stayed pretty flat flow wise, given how bad it was, and that just sort of tells me that maybe. This is to stay. Maybe this is for real. That investors are 
allocating to thematics, but maybe it's it's more of a you can always say you know it's funny sometimes you buy something short term and it doesn't work out the way you want it to then you're like oh well it's a long term investment now um but it looks like with thematics it, and I wanted to really see what happened in October and the fact that money pretty much didn't it no money new money came in but no money really left like these thematic yeah. products um so I thought that was really interesting and I think that sort of just says that maybe this trend is is going to be for real, and I think I guess when advisors are buying it, they're understanding that okay, if I'm, I'm if I'm buying something like emerging market internet or emerging market consumer, I have to understand that that's a long term play, right? That that's a long term like structural shift in something, and I'm going to allocate a piece of my portfolio to it, and I'm going to leave it. And I get it, like robotics and all that. It was a huge beneficiary of the run up in tech and all that, and it got hit really hard in October, but money. You know, some money came out, but it, for the most part, money holistically still stayed into thematic. So I think overall, that's a that's a bullish sign still for thematic products. I mean, I, mean, I think one of the things for us, because we have a number of thematic ETFs that you know advisors have commented on that what they like is the simplicity, and it allows it allows them to have a conversation with their clients about a specific area of the market or a specific um, uh, sector or theme. And uh, there's no, you know, 20 quality screens attached to it, or it's not a, a boring asset class. It's actually it's conversational uh, alpha uh, and allows people to, and I find the younger investors especially are starting to look for ways to make their investments have an impact out there or, or express a view. So um, it's, it's definitely an interesting space. Cam, anything to add on that? Yeah, I disagree with you. Like, I think that it's... Uh it's something that people understand, and I think that resonates with people. And uh, some of these thematics aren't necessarily even correlated to traditional equity markets, right? So even, you know, in this recent downturn, you know, the cannabis space is, you know, half-jokingly, we've, we've said it's, it's the hedge uh, because it's, it's performed relatively well uh, on, yeah, on right. most days, right? So I think that I think thematic products do have a place uh, in, in people's portfolios because it tends to be something that they understand or they have some insight or, you know, talk to the average investor about, you know, MSCI, low vol, EP, uh, you know, with 18 different screens, and they really have no idea. Um, but they will have a sense of, you know, maybe the robotics component or, you know, the the the, the autonomous vehicle uh, product that you guys have, they'll, they'll have a sense of that and what it means to them, and they'll be willing to invest because that's that's where they see kind of the future going. So, I think it resonates for for the right reasons. So, uh, favorite ticker? I'm gonna guess it's gonna be something around one of the thematic ETFs out there. Um, Tom, favorite ticker? Uh, sure. So, um, one of my favorite firms for tickers, and I gotta give these guys props, is, is Direction Funds here in the U.S. and they have a lineup of leveraged products, so I understand leverage is these products aren't for everyone, but their their tickers are spot on. Um, and these, they have a, an S and P like oil, oil and gas bull and bear, and the tickers are gush and drip. Um, so <laughs> that's always been one of my favorites. Uh, but they have some really really interesting ones, like have consumer staples one like need and want, but um, gush and drip would probably be my my two favorite ones. Who has the um, Tom? Who's the company that has the agriculture ETF and the ticker is Moo? That's uh, Van X. Uh, yeah. Anytime like, there's like a ticker that battle, that one always comes up. Moo, like <laughs> that one's like a, that's a fan favorite. I like it too. I like it too. How about you, Cam? So uh, you know, there's a there's a, a firm in Canada who's come up with quite a few creative ones. Uh, so you know, I think Evolve's done a really good job with their tickers. 
Uh, so needless to say, I probably I probably won't mention those uh, because uh, those, those are obvious winners. <laughs> but uh, uh, let's let's go with I think it's direction as well. It's that they've got a uh, a leveraged uh, Asia product, Yin and Yang. I think it is, Tom. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's yeah, great. I think those, uh, that's pretty interesting. It's easy to remember. I think the, the ticker is the reason that they're so good. It's it's just something that, uh, you know, you don't have to search your Bloomberg terminal for. It's just something that, that resonates top of mind. Um, and really quickly, because uh, we're running out of time, your big predictions, and Tom, maybe you'll start your big predictions for the U.S. ETF market for 2019. Uh, I mean, I think we're going to still see, um, we're still going to see, Growth, like you know, I I think that's that's here to stay. Because ETFs, they're competing, they're taking money from so many different avenues. They're taking money from individual stocks. They're competing. Some of these fixed income ones are competing with futures and CDX, uh, and then you're taking from active funds too. I think we're going to still see growth. A lot of it's going to depend on the market too. So even though again this year it was a good it was a good year flow wise, but the market sort of played. Um, uh, uh, you know, played a big role in the flows. But um, one thing that I'm really watching closely is sort of what's happening on the fixed income side, because I think that's sort of been a space that active has been pretty safe from. Um, it'd just be interesting to see some of the innovation that comes from there. So that's going to be one that we, we're definitely going to keep track of uh, into next year. Okay. So, the three things that, that I would mention is, I guess, I think 2019 will bring increased usage. I think, you know, with a you know, the recent downturn in markets and, you know, potentially more of a downturn in 2019, I think it's going to cause a lot of investors to take a closer look at what they're paying for both advice and product. So I think that it, usage will increase. Uh, the other, I guess, themes or things that, that I'd look for in 2019, I'd, I'd agree with Tom, fixed income for sure. Uh, we've seen a massive amount of activity over the last couple of weeks, and it's obvious to me that, that investors are now properly starting to incorporate those those funds. I think that's going to continue well into 2019, so so uh, big for flows. Uh, and then liquid alts is kind of a bigger thing in Canada now. So, uh, you know, that's that's new. I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out, but definitely something to watch for in 2019. That's great. Tom, Cam, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Rosh. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.